Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Larry. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who has struggled with drug addiction and alcoholism. Hey, everybody. Very good. <laughs> My name is Judy, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who has struggled with drug addiction and alcoholism, and I'm currently working on food issues. Hi, Judy. Hi. So this is a true story. In 1983, I was 25 years old. In the fall of that year, I checked into Hoover Detox, which at that time was commonly known as the drunk tank. I had just re returned to Portland from California where I'd been attempting what we refer to in recovery as the geographical cure for my addictions. It had not had the desired effect. So when I returned home, my family was so alarmed at my condition that they insisted that I get some help. I had no job or insurance, so Hooper was my only available option. But I still had a couple of years to go before I reached my bottom. Within a week after leaving detox, I was drinking about a fifth of liquor a day again, along with whatever narcotics I could get my hands on. The early 80s had not been kind to me. My first wife had recently left me, taking our two-year-old daughter with her. After a few years earlier, I had been fired from a band that I started that was now a Grammy-nominated act and had songs on the Billboard Top 100 charts. How did I end up here? Well, I'd started using drugs, marijuana mostly, when I was pretty young. At 11 or 12, I was getting high every day. And I don't remember exactly when alcohol became a daily thing, but by 16 or 17, I was drinking a lot. I thought I did it because I liked the way it made me feel. Looking back, there was quite a bit of trauma that I was medicating. When I was 12 and 13, there were incidents where I was pretty severely beaten. Once in a street fight, and another time at the hands of the police. I had resisted arrest because I was so high on LSD that I was sure they were trying to kill me. During that same year, my older sister was in a car accident that put her in a coma for three months. That effectively shut my family down emotionally. Mom and dad were focused on that and emotionally unavailable to me at a time when I really needed them. Through my teen years, I found people and places that were conducive to a drinking, drugging lifestyle. I started a couple of bands that would play the clubs around town, and the party never ended. Those years were absolutely awesome and equally absolutely horrible. I have stories. We won't go there. Suffice it to say that drugs and alcohol had begun to cause problems for me. But I just kept telling myself that this time it will be different. I won't have a problem. I can handle it. In my early 20s, I tried settling down, got married to my first wife, and we had a child. I joined the Carpenter's Apprenticeship Program and was working heavy construction. Hangovers made it too hard to get to work a lot of days, so that didn't go too well. And to say the marriage was dysfunctional and unhealthy would be an understatement. Looking back, I actually owe my ex-wife a debt of gratitude for leaving, even though at the time I was devastated. So I hit the drinking and drugs harder than ever, trying to ease that pain, and eventually ended up in Hooper Detox. They had Alcoholics Anonymous meetings in there, but those guys used the word God, so I was having none of that. But I actually did stay sober after I got out, for almost a week. 
I told myself, it's okay for me to drink. This time it will be different. I can handle it. In 1983, I was 26 years old, divorced with two kids, addicted to drugs, and dating a drug dealer. <laughs> then I met Larry and knew that I had met the man of my dreams. Or hallucinations, I'm not sure. I'm sure I was high at the time. But in order to understand how I was sure that this fellow addict was a man for me, we need to back up to see how I got there. From a very young age, I never felt like I fit in or was good enough. I remember that as a young child, I would lie or exaggerate to look better than I was because I never felt like I would be accepted if I was just myself. While we appeared to be a good Christian family on the outside world, at home, my father was a rageaholic with a very explosive temper. I learned at a young age to hold my feelings in, to keep the peace and not set him off. I spent my childhood seeking my dad's approval. In 1967, we moved from California to Woodstock, New York. This was two years before the festival, and it was hippie haven. I was 12 when the Woodstock Festival happened, which is where I got high for the first time. I felt peace and like I finally fit in with the universe. I thought I had found serenity at last. I got high virtually every day after that, but I was a very high achiever, maintained a straight A average, and graduated a year early when I was 16. I moved to Portland when my parents were relocated here. I met my first husband and married him within a year when I was 19. I knew he had a horrible temper, but I thought I could live with this. I lived with dad all those years. I thought I could cure him if I just loved him enough. And surely he would never hurt me. But before the first year of our marriage was over, the physical and emotional abuse had started. At first it was shoving and pushing and then escalated into full beatings. We had two children by now, and I was afraid to leave as he swore he would take my son and I would never see him again. I began to have migraines and saw a doctor who prescribed prescription painkillers. And I soon discovered that I could deal with anything if I was high enough, so I came to rely on my pills. And how interesting, I got a headache every night right before he came home. And it wasn't long before I was going through the pills faster than the doctors could prescribe, so I started seeing various doctors who didn't know about each other and soon had enough pills to get through life. I wasn't smart enough to leave him for myself, but when I thought he might turn towards my daughter, I knew I had to act. I left with my two kids and the clothes on our backs and we ran to a shelter. I divorced him in 1981. My kids were one and four. I was 24 years old. I started dating an old friend who was a drug dealer and started using on a regular basis. Didn't matter what it was, uh, marijuana, co cocaine, opiates. And I began selling drugs to support my habit and soon met Larry, who was a musician, very cool, and he became my best customer. <clears throat> well, I guess you gotta be the best at something, right? So. So my friend Judy called me and said she had some drugs for sale, and we reconnected. We always got along real well. 
she used to be the girlfriend of one of my best drug connections, so we'd hung out quite a bit. Now, here was a girl that could keep up with me. In fact, sometimes keeping up with her was challenging. She had become adept at forging prescriptions for narcotics and had recently been arrested for doing so. But buying drugs at the pharmacy was cheaper than buying them on the street, and we became a team in this enterprise. I remember the anxiety, wondering if this was the day one or both of us would be arrested, or that any number of terrible things might happen. But we felt we had no choice. We were severely addicted and had to get our drugs. I had a constant suffocating feeling of impending doom, and the only remedy I knew for that was to use more drugs and alcohol. But the substances I so desperately needed and depended upon had betrayed me. They no longer provided the oblivion and euphoria I was seeking. They just weren't working anymore. I'd hit bottom. It was 1985. I was 27 years old. Now, during this time, I was a very functional addict. My career was taking off, and I hadn't lost anything, so how could I possibly have a problem? Because of my upbringing, I knew Jesus, but definitely was not walking with him. I knew what I was doing was wrong because I didn't want him to know. In fact, I would hide in my closet and pull the clothes in front of me so that he couldn't see me shooting the drugs. Through all this, I continued to take pills to maintain, especially during the day when I worked, save the hard drugs for afterwards. I mean, I'm smart about my drugs anyway. I began script running, which is foraging prescriptions from doctors and filling them at pharmacies. One day my luck ran out and I was arrested. I spent four days in jail and during that time I never once considered going straight. I only thought about how to do it better. I was eventually convicted of two felonies for forgery and possession and received a suspended sentence in probation for three years. I continued with the pills and other drugs, eventually graduating to heroin to get off the cocaine. When Larry and I got together, we perfected this scheme. We had all the medical apparatus in our home and we'd make one of us to look like we were injured or sick. We even took the kids with us because we would look more normal and not raise suspicions from the pharmacist. Larry and I moved in together and I discovered that Oh my God, this guy had a real drinking problem. I couldn't understand how anyone could spend so much money on beer and why he had to have it every day. Forget that I was the same with my drugs, but it didn't make me sloppy. His, so his mother and I staged an intervention for him. Yeah. During the intervention, I got a call from Larry telling me the counselor wanted to talk to me too. And I thought, good, because God only knows what he's been telling him. I'll tell him the real story. Needless to say, the intervention became mine, too. I was told that I would either go to jail, die, or lose my kids. Jail and death didn't scare me, but the thought of losing my kids did. Larry and I agreed to go to treatment that day. Yeah, it's always fun remembering this stuff, you know. <laughs> We were fortunate that our circumstances allowed us to enter residential treatment. I attended Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and stayed clean and sober for almost nine years, from early in 1985 until late 1993. And Judy and I were married. She was clean and sober now, too. And life got a lot better. Our kids were happy and healthy. 
We bought a house. We both had successful careers. But I now understand that my program of sobriety at that time consisted mainly of trying to control my environment. I worked the steps as best I could and did some service work helping others. But I never got a sponsor and was baffled by the rest of the program. I thought I had surrendered. I really did. But I still lived in fear. What or who had I surrendered to? In the winter of 1993, my then teenage son got the flu and was prescribed narcotic cough medicine. I decided I also had a cough that required treatment, so I took a big swig of that cough syrup. That was the beginning of an eight-year-long relapse. Within a few months, I had returned to my old ways because I told myself, this time it will be different. I can handle it. I looked up my old dealer. He was still selling heroin, and I became his customer. When I nearly overdosed a couple of times, I got scared and went back into treatment, really just to detox a couple of times. I spent the next eight years fighting that same old battle with myself. I was lost. During that time, I never had a drink. That was part of my denial. As long as I don't drink, it'll be OK. See all these crazy things I tell myself? you know. But I did smoke marijuana and was taking handfuls of Percodan or Vicodin whenever I could get them, which was not often enough. When I started to experience severe chronic back pain, I decided that I was entitled to ongoing narcotic pain medication. So I found a pain clinic and they prescribed OxyContin. I did not take those pills as prescribed, so I would run out of them too soon and go into withdrawal. Then I discovered that you could go on the internet, this was the 90s, you could go on the internet and there you could find doctors that would mail prescriptions to you for drugs if you gave them enough money. So I got myself a new additional doctor in Tijuana. So, that seemed to work pretty well for a while. But after not too long, all my time and energy, my life was spent getting and taking those drugs. I didn't want to see people, and I didn't leave the house any more than I absolutely had to. I couldn't really work effectively anymore. I was always too stoned if I had the drugs and too sick if I didn't. This is the obsession of addiction. It's all I could think about, and that would compel me to use again. My life had become unsustainable. It was not working on any level. So each day became something to be endured rather than enjoyed. I would wake up in the mornings and just wish the day was over already. It was pretty bleak. My world had become very small. I was at the middle of it, and I couldn't stand myself. To get what I needed, to do what I needed to do, required me to lie, cheat, and steal. I hated what I had become. I really wanted it to end. But as much as I tried, I couldn't quit. I had promised Judy that I would stop, and if I couldn't on my own, I would go to treatment. I went to outpatient treatment and started attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings again and was able to stop taking the drugs. The last day I used was November 17, 2002. The next day, November 18, 2002, is my sobriety date, and I'm keeping it.
We entered the treatment center in February of 1985 and were led directly to the psychiatric ward of the hospital. I thought, I'm not crazy, I'm just addicted to drugs. But we needed a detox before they would allow us into the rehab program. I also remember thinking, poor Larry, he has to give up everything. I only have to give up the drugs because I don't drink alcohol. And we faithfully followed up with their one-year counseling program, but did not work any real program after that. Larry and I got married in December of 1985 and stayed clean and sober for many, many years. We were busy with work, life, and kids. As my career accelerated, so did the traveling for business. After many years of sobriety, I fooled myself into thinking that I could drink now and then, as it was never a problem before. During the same time, Larry had relapsed on pills, and we began to live separate lives. My resentment grew, and so did the justification I needed to drink. I began to drink in secret on a daily basis around 1998, especially as I was traveling more and more then. I no longer hated traveling and looked forward to the nights alone in my hotel room. My old addictive behaviors returned with the lying and the covering up. I was soon booking hotels that were in walking distance of the nearest drugstore or a liquor store. <laughs> For you, it would be the drugstore. For me, it's a liquor store. I started carrying vodka with me in my luggage, just in case. And while my career and reputation was at its high point, my personal life was falling apart. My marriage was deteriorating. We got to the point we didn't even like each other anymore. My world was becoming smaller, and I felt isolated and stopped spending time with others. I felt alone in a crowd and crowded when I was alone. In 2001, I had surgery and was home for several weeks. I ran out of reading material and looked on my bookshelf, and there sat the Bible. And I thought, well, that's a perfectly good book. It's got lots of stories about battles, love, adventures, and I was going to read it as a book of literature. And I read the Bible cover to cover, and it took me one year and one day. And when I was done, I got on my knees and asked Jesus to come back into my life. And... <laughs> And I heard very clearly as if he was standing next to me, Judy, I never left you. And I cried and asked him to forgive me, and he said, I already have. And I read again the parable of the lost son, and this has become my life first, because this was me. I was a prodigal daughter returning to her father. At the same time, our marriage was continuing to deteriorate, but now that I had found Jesus again, I felt I needed to do everything I could to save our marriage and to bring Larry to know Christ. Because I thought, talk about codependent, if I left, he would reject him forever. And I insisted upon faith-based counseling if our marriage was going to survive. Through counseling and his own soul searching, Larry finally found and accepted Jesus Christ as his savior, he had also stopped using drugs and entered a 12-step program. And then he started doing something just awful. He became nice. <laughs> he became thoughtful. He put flowers in my bathroom. He kept his side of the street clean. He had changed his behavior, and even though I would never tell him, I wanted what he had, and that was recovery. While I had given up drugs of any kind earlier, I had my last drink in June of 2003. 
I celebrated 15 years of sobriety this last June. But I still didn't enter a recovery program because I didn't want to prove him right. So you'd think I would be happy now. I have a husband who is a believer and in recovery. But no, instead I felt like my job was done. My feelings still had not softened and I was ready to leave. I'd seen a divorce lawyer and was ready to tell him I wanted a divorce during our next counseling session. But the night before the session, Larry was downstairs rehearsing with his gospel band. And I was upstairs and praying that I would have the strength to do what I needed to do the next day. And I knew now that it was just going to be God and me. Then I heard God say to me, go downstairs. And so, of course, I did what any good Christian would do, and I argued with him. And I said, I don't want to go downstairs. And he said, go downstairs. So I said, fine, I'll go down, and I'll say hi to the other guys in the band. Well, when I went downstairs, they were singing that old hymn, Down by the Riverside. And I saw the love of the Lord on Larry's face. And immediately, my heart softened, and the filters fell from my heart and my eyes and my ears. And I saw him and I heard him in a different light. Now, I wasn't sure what was happening, so I wasn't gonna say anything to him that night. But you know, it could have just been indigestion. I had no idea what was going on in me. But the next day in our session, the counselor and Larry asked, what do you want to do? And I expected the words to come out, I want a separation, but instead found myself saying, I want to try again. And that day, I fell madly in love with my husband all over again, and we've been like two kids playing house ever since. <laughs> in 2005, we renewed our vows on our 20th anniversary, this time in church with God in attendance right here at Cedar Mill, and we just celebrated 33 years of marriage this last wow. December. I'm really glad it happened that way. My first few weeks of sobriety were pretty tough. I was experiencing withdrawal symptoms. I was in the middle of union contract negotiations at work and under a lot of pressure from a new boss. Nine days sober. I was told my services were no longer needed. For years, I'd been afraid that would happen because I was using drugs. Then it happened when I got sober. It didn't seem fair. So I had to start learning to live through whatever life threw at me without the drugs. I'm thankful to God that he let me get desperate enough to overrule my ego and actually do what was suggested because I had to change what I was doing, where I was going, and with whom. So I went to AA meetings almost every day, got a service position, got a sponsor, started going to church, and worked the steps. Most important, I started each day praying to God to keep me sober, to change my thinking, and to help me learn to live in a manner that was sustainable and not full of the fear, guilt, and shame that I'd been experiencing. My sponsor suggested that I pray every morning, so that's what I did. When I mentioned this to our marriage counselor, he asked me, who was I praying to? I said I wasn't sure. 
I'd been going to church from time to time, and the pastor there had been teaching from the book of Matthew. And Judy had been bugging me about giving Jesus a chance to help me. So here was my plan. I will read the Gospels to arm myself with enough information to defend against the intrusion of people that were trying to convert me. But the New Testament was not what I expected it to be. It was not a book of rules and rituals that I would have to follow to be part of a religious club. It was the story of Jesus, and it is the truth of who he is and what he has done for us. So I prayed, asking him to come into my life and accepted him as my Lord and Savior. I've done my best to walk with the Lord ever since and continue to experience his abundant love and to live under his protection and care. A couple years into the miraculous reconciliation of our marriage, Judy heard about a Christian recovery program called Celebrate Recovery. And the Lord put a burden on her heart to begin a weekly CR meeting here at church. So after a bit of time and doing and praying, I helped her start our Tuesday night meeting here at Cedar Mill Bible Church. Celebrate Recovery has helped me in many ways that my other 12-step meetings didn't address. It gives me a place to be of service leading worship and has really opened my eyes to my hurts, habits, and hang-ups beyond just my chemical addictions. Most important, it allows me to share my recovery with the acknowledgement of the one true higher power my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There have, of course, also been some tough times. Each year seemed to get better than the next. Then came year six. Our business almost failed, and Judy got really sick during a year-long chemotherapy-type treatment that she had to undergo. My father-in-law and stepdad both died right around that time, too. But it was during all of this that a lot of growth happened. I had new tools to assist me in living and felt as if I had found solid ground on which to stand. Matthew 7:24 through 25 reads, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. I started attending AA meetings and working the 12 steps. With the daily help of God, I no longer have any cravings for drug or alcohol. I wish I could say that life has been a bed of roses ever since, but life has thrown us some curves as well as blessings. And this is what we call living life on life's terms. Larry lost his job, and I found out that I had hepatitis C that was killing my liver. I don't know how I contracted it, but I won't pretend that I didn't live a risky lifestyle in the 80s, or it could have been blood I was given in the 70s. But I had to go through a year of chemo-like treatment, and it was awful. But I never lost faith that God had a plan. You know, I firmly believe that the reason he brought me through the years of drug and alcohol use was so that we could help others, and he knew way back then that we would start a Celebrate Recovery program here at this church one day. And I believe he allowed me to go through my abusive first marriage so I could be a comfort to women who were struggling with the same issue. And I believe that he brought me through our near divorce and my illness so that I would learn to completely depend upon him, which I do. 
I know the power and the healing of the 12 steps. The fourth step where we make a searching and fearless moral and spiritual inventory of ourselves changed me from the inside out as I faced my past actions, fears, and resentments. And I found that resentments more than anything else will lead me to act in ways that are hurtful to me and others. I found that my fear of not being considered worthy or good enough by other people will lead me down the wrong road, the wrong path. And that's why I pray every day for his strength and his serenity. I've discovered in Celebrate Recovery that I can easily become addicted to just about anything because it's in my nature. And I am currently working on, successfully, my addiction to food. It's not what or how much I eat, but the compulsive behavior I found myself doing similar to the drug days where, you know, there's hiding, half lies, half truth, which is called lying. Um, and, and hoarding and just not being honest about it, the compulsiveness of it. Um, and I have also discovered that I have a hole in my soul that only Jesus can fill. And on a daily basis, I ask him to fill me up. And I need to let go of the control I think I have and surrender to him. And when I do this, life is good. And when I don't, which isn't often, it's so easy to revert back to my old way of thinking. And finally, I discovered that my father, who I feared and worshipped growing up, parented with the very limited tools he had. He thought he was doing the best he could for his kids. But I never heard the words, I'm proud of you, and have spent my entire life feeling like I never measured up. He died 10 years ago, but I can forgive him now, as I do know he loved me. And I learned to reparent myself with God, a father who loves me unconditionally and finds me worthy of his love with all my sins and shortcomings. And he has forgiven my past and he wraps his arms around me every day. So today I attend meetings regularly, I sponsor 12 women, I lead step study groups, and I work with my sponsor on a regular basis. I try to be of service wherever I can. All the promises of the program have come true for me. If you're still struggling or are struggling at all with any type of hurt, hang up, or habit, I hope you'll give Celebrate Recovery a try. And I hope you hang in there until the miracle happens for you too. Because it's not just about addiction. In fact, only a small portion of our attendees have addiction issues. It's a program for growing closer to God. And that's what we all want and need. And like the back of our shirts say, God took my mess and made it his message. Well, I am truly grateful to have an abundant, exciting life now, filled with joy and love beyond what I deserve or could have imagined before. Partly, this is because I'm learning to stop worrying about getting what I want and instead start wanting what I get. Acceptance, it's a hard word to say, acceptance. <laughs> That's the inside part. While it has been a long period of reconstruction, we are grateful for the pain and difficulty we have faced. That's because the trials have forced us to do the difficult work. I don't believe there are many of us that would just volunteer for this sort of self-examination, ego destruction, and leveling of pride unless convinced it was absolutely necessary. I wouldn't. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. 
But this was the gift to us from God, being defeated by alcohol and drugs. That's step one, powerlessness. We know that God is present in our lives, that he knows us and cares for us, and he can heal us. That's step two. We know that our lives, all that we are and have, come from God, so we choose to trust him with our lives and our will. Step three. This and the rest of the steps have transformed our life in a truly miraculous manner. The places we've been, the things we've done, and the way I feel today about God and people and life are beyond anything I could have imagined when I started on this journey of recovery. I'm beginning to understand what a magnificent masterpiece of God's handiwork we are, each and every one of us. Notwithstanding any of this, we remember what our part is in our recovery. We suit up and we show up. We do the footwork. It is not us that accomplishes the most important work. No human power could or can relieve these addictions. Only God can do that, and he will and does when we seek him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reads, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We thank God for allowing us to be of service, and we thank you for letting us tell our story. About a year and a half ago, I was uh, invited by Judy to come to Celebrate Recovery to hear them give their, their story and share their uh, testimony. And I sat in our chapel and was just blown away. And I grabbed them afterwards and I said, we have to do that on Sunday morning. And they said, we've done that on Sunday morning before you came. And I said, we have to do that on Sunday morning again. Um, and then this morning, I've been reminded why I thought and felt that way. Um, but today really wasn't about Larry and Judy's story or about Esther's story. It's about our story. And it's about how God wants to speak to us through them. How he wants to use their story to connect with our story and encourage us and challenge us and invite to us into some things and into some places that maybe we've been hesitant to go. And so I want to close our time together this morning the way we always do, and that's at the table. That's with this meal where we remember that we are powerless, that we desperately need the love and grace and forgiveness of God in the midst of our brokenness. It's a table where we come and we declare the death and resurrection of Jesus again for us in the midst of our brokenness. It's also a place where we can come and say, God, I'm free and safe to bring my brokenness to you because you will receive me every time and you and you alone have the power and strength to help me live a different kind of life. One of the things that Judy said this morning that really struck me was, she talked about that experience when she was 12 at Woodstock, and she said, I thought I had found serenity. Like, I thought I had found the good life, the life of fullness and satisfaction and joy that I've been looking for. And I, and I 
I know the world promises that to so many of us in so many different ways. If you will just do this, engage this, find out or have this, then you will have the good life. And every single time over time, the world disappoints. But Jesus comes and he says, there is a life, there is a kingdom that if you surrender to it and step into it, it will not disappoint. It will offer you a life of fullness and grace and joy and blessedness. And he talks about this kingdom. And he talks about it in his very famous Sermon on the Mount. And ironically, the eight recovery principles of CR are based on the Beatitudes, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And so before we come to the table... I'm going to read the eight principles, and then we together are going to respond with the corresponding beatitude. So I'll read the principle, and then you'll see in bold the beatitude on the screen, and we'll read that aloud together. So I'll read, and then then we'll all respond together. And here's what I want you to consider. Which of these does God want me to engage today? Which of these is God speaking to me? Is he challenging me with? Is he inviting me into? Um, And then... I. I want you to feel freedom to come to the table and bring that with you and meet with God um, wherever he's meeting you. So I'll read and then we'll respond together. Realize I'm not God. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and that my life is unmanageable. Blessed are those who know that they are spiritually poor. Yeah, we can read the, the tagline as well. Earnestly believe that God exists, that I matter to him, and that he has the power to help me recover. Blessed are those who mourn. Consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. Openly examine and confess my faults to myself, to God, and to someone I trust. Voluntarily submit to any and all changes God wants to make in my life and humbly ask him to remove my character defects. Evaluate all my relationships. Offer forgiveness to those who have hurt me and make amends for the harm I've done to others when possible, except when to do so would harm them or others. Reserve a daily time with God for self-examination, Bible reading, and prayer in order to know God and his will for my life and to gain the power to follow his will. Yield myself to God to be used to bring this good news to others, both by my example and by my words. I'm going to pray for a morning, and then I invite you to come when you're ready to the table and receive the elements on your own. Father, this morning we thank you for the way you work, the way you insert yourself into our stories to use all things for good. I thank you specifically this morning for Esther and for Larry and Judy. Uh, I thank you for the way that you were at work throughout their stories, Lord. Thank you for the way that you have used their vulnerability and their willingness to share openly 
to hopefully create a safer community here at Cedar Mill, a community where we can talk about our brokenness more freely and find a healing and hope together. Um, Lord, this morning as we come to the table, I pray that we come with the places where we are hurt, where we are broken, where we are struggling, and that you would meet us in that place, that you would remind us of your great love for us, even while we were yet sinners, even while we are broken and struggling, Lord. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the power that you have to offer healing and hope in the middle of our hurts. And so, Father, we come to the table. We come now confessing our sin, receiving your grace, inviting your power and will and ways into our lives. And we pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.